Way, way back, Christmas 2016, my mom gave me this book that I was going to hold up, but I forgot to bring it, so pretend I'm holding it. Title of the book is, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, A Citizen's Guide to Hope in a Time of Fear. And I kept that book by my bed, and whenever I started to feel hopeless or despair, that whole year long, I would pick it up and I would read just one or two of the entries. The book contains over 50 contributions by activists and poets, academics, artists, dreamers, and doers. And all of them are people who have spent their lives working for a more just world. And they're sharing words of hope and pointing the way to resilience in the face of great adversity. I think that the title alone is very powerful. The impossible will take a little while. I looked it up because I wondered where that came from. Does anybody know? Okay, apparently it comes from a Billie Holiday song. And the full lyric is, the difficult I'll do right now, the impossible will take a little while. And I love this so much because when you try to wrap your head around this, the impossible will take a little while, you can't, right? Because if it's impossible, it can't be done. So how can it only take a little while? It just doesn't work. You're just left scratching your head trying to figure it out. And so it's in that space of head scratching and wonderment that I want to enter the passage we just heard from Deuteronomy. So in that spirit of confusion, we're going to work backwards just to make it crystal clear. Verse 11, poor people will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. Back up to verse 7. Now, if there are poor people among you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Back up to verse 4. Of course there won't be any poor persons among you, because the Lord will bless you. Okay, so which one is it? There won't be any poor people. There might be poor people. There will always be poor people. Biblical scholar Robert Williamson Jr. points out that it's actually verse 5 that's crucial. Of course there won't be any poor persons among you, but only if you carefully obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing every bit of this commandment that I am giving to you right now. So the idea is that God has provided us with a world that has enough in it for everyone and no one need live in poverty, but only if we humans do our part too. So what's our part? Did anybody catch verse one? Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. Just like a little one, you know, like no big deal, just like a really easy thing to do. If we follow this Sabbath commandment, if we cancel all debts every seventh year, then the world of enough that God has created will ensure that no one has to live in poverty. And that sounds really good, right? Jewish scholar Amy Robertson says, it's as if you can see the commandment springing forth out of the speaker's mouth and before the words can even make it into the air, we already know that this is not going to happen. That like this is beyond what humans can handle. Canceling all debts every seven years. 
you can see how we very quickly move from, of course there won't be any poor persons among you, to poor persons will never disappear from the earth in just eight short verses, right? Because just try to wrap your brain around this, right? All debts, student loans, credit card debt, medical debt, payday loans, mortgages, all of them just poof, wiped out every seven years. Can you imagine the impact that would have? Because the thing about debt is that debt snowballs. Once you're in debt, it becomes really hard to get out of debt because one small loan leads to another loan to cover the interest payments on the first loan and the money coming in is barely enough to cover the interest let alone touch the principal and this is one of the many reasons why the poor usually get poor and the rich usually get richer when you're rich you don't even have to work you can just let your money do the work for you but when you're born into poverty if you're born into a family that's already in debt, it's really hard to get out. But imagine if there were a reset every seven years, if there was a giant restart button, if there was a pause, if there was a Sabbath for debt, and if every seven years the playing field got leveled. It sounds too good to be true, right? But wait, there's more. In the seventh year, in this Sabbath year, not only were debts to be forgiven, but also people weren't even supposed to plant or work in their fields. It was supposed to be a year of both economic and agricultural Sabbath. So you can see where the title for the sermon came from, right? The impossible will take a little while because the impossible in this story all comes back to this idea of Sabbath keeping this commandment. It's got to be one of the hardest commandments to keep, right? I mean, if you think about it, most of the 10 big ones are actually things that you're not supposed to do. Like don't worship other gods, don't murder, don't steal. You don't have to do anything. You just have to not do these things to be in the clear. But Sabbath is something that we have to actively pursue and choose. I think that oftentimes, those of us who are Christian, when we think of Sabbath, if we think of Sabbath at all, we think of it as like maybe a quaint individual practice. I'm reminded of my first awareness of the idea of Sabbath, which came from Laura Ingalls Wilder. And she wrote about like sitting very still in a chair on Sabbath afternoon and doing nothing and being really, really bored. I don't know if anybody else has that memory of that part in the book. This did not sound good to me. But Sabbath, Sabbath in the Hebrew Bible is not individualistic. It's not about sitting by yourself in a chair. And it's not quaint like Laura Ingalls Wilder. Sabbath in the Hebrew Bible is communal, and it is significant. Dr. Robertson says that Sabbath has at least three different dimensions. There's spiritual Sabbath, which is maybe what we think of first, resting from work, spending time with God. There's that agricultural Sabbath that I mentioned, giving the land time to rest and not working the land. And then economic Sabbath, 
forgiving debts, divesting from the world's economic systems for a time. However you look at it, spiritual, agricultural, or economic, Sabbath is a really tall order. It's not as simple as sitting still on Sunday afternoon and being bored. Sabbath is a radical interruption of life as we know it. Sabbath interrupts the flow of absolutely everything it touches. Sabbath radically disrupts our economic systems. It dismantles business as usual. Sabbath radically reorients our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and our spirits. And Sabbath invites us to ponder, to really pause and truly consider the question of how the impossible might take just a little while. I think that there are a lot of people who would say that Sabbath is maybe kind of like a silly, outdated idea, that it's impractical, maybe even irresponsible, it's a waste of time, it's not sustainable. And there are definitely a lot of people who would look at this passage from Deuteronomy and say similar things. This idea of forgiving debts every seven years, silly, impractical, irresponsible, a waste of time, and certainly not sustainable. But perhaps, perhaps we are engaging with a God who hears all of our objections and still whispers to us quietly, I know, I know, the impossible will take a little while. God's dreams, especially these wild and radical Sabbath dreams, may feel impossible to us. These ancient texts hold in front of us the possibility of worlds of justice that we can scarcely even wrap our heads around. They hold in front of us the dream of a world where the last is first, where the hungry are filled with good things, where release is proclaimed to the captives, and where justice rolls down like a mighty stream. And we squint at that dream, and, and it can almost come into focus, and then we reach out for it, and it just slips out of our grasp. And it makes me wonder, do God's dreams matter? Or are they just fanciful pipe dreams? When we spend our time pondering God's dreams, is that a worthy pursuit? Or is it just daydreaming? I guess maybe it depends on whether you happen to think that daydreaming is a waste of time or not. The Bible is full of dreamers, not just God, but prophets, and poets, and ordinary people like you and me, several people named Joseph, in fact. I guess that's like a big dreaming thing. When we make time for Sabbath in all of its many forms, then we are accepting an interruption of the status quo, and we are accepting an invitation to step into God's dreams for a time. And we are not alone when we take that step because people of faith have been daydreaming alongside God since the dawn of time. And where would we be without our dreamers? Catholic peace activist and poet Rosemarie Berger has an essay in that book, and it's called Getting Our Gaze Back. And in it, she talks about what it's like to sometimes just sit 
and absentmindedly stare out her window and slip into this dreamlike dream state to daydream, which I think is a form of Sabbath. And she shares that Benedictine monk Bernard of Clairvaux calls this resting in the mind of God. It is this kind of meditation, he says, that replaces confusion with order, gathers together that which is displaced, penetrates into that which is hidden, discovers that which is true, and distinguishes it from that which merely appears as such. And so, in the spirit of seeking Sabbath, may the parts of us that are dispersed be knit together. May our confused and weary hearts and spirits find some semblance of order, and may we continue to seek the truth of the world that God is still dreaming, even now. Amen. <laughs>